Well, I'm sure for some today that it is inconceivable that anyone would ever misuse Scripture. Particularly to prove a point made or bolster a position taken or to explain a philosophy embraced or to justify a decision uh, that was reached or a plan followed. But it does happen. Unfortunately, it is a common practice. A few of the most common verses misused are Psalm 4610, be still and know that I am the Lord, or Jeremiah 2911, for I know the plans that I have for you, or Matthew 7-1, judge not lest you be judged, or Matthew 1820, or Philippians 413. Even this past week, by the way, Matthew 1820 is where two or three are gathered together and uh, Philippians 4.13 is what everybody puts on their eyelids if you play football. Uh, even this past week, I was surprised to read that a very prominent evangelical leader actually used our passage from last week to justify um, or to argue that Christians have the responsibility to make sure everyone is immunized from the coronavirus. Well, our passage tonight is another one of those uh, commonly misused verses, or it contains one of the misused verses. Um, it was, mu- it was uh, used to the point of abuse during the 90s, during the church growth movement, and it continues to be a favorite among some, if not many, church uh, planters. Anytime someone wants to do something new and creative or innovative, the first thing out of their mouth is new wine must be put in new wineskins or you can't put new wine in old wineskins. And every time I hear it, I simply shake my head and think of the words of the great Ignigo Montoya. I do not think that means what you think it means. Because what Jesus says in our passage tonight is not a general principle for church growth. He's talking about the radically new thing that He had come to proclaim and do. Our outline tonight is found in its regular place in the back of your bulletin. We're going to see two points tonight. We're going to look first at the thoughtful or a thoughtful inquiry or inquiry, and the second is a meaningful reply, and then we're going to take a little longer maybe than usual to make some applications, all right? So a thoughtful inquiry and a meaningful reply, and as is our custom, let's pray before we begin. Uh, Father, by your Spirit, would you awaken our attention and refresh us? And encourage us and convict us and comfort us as we see Jesus and hear His gospel tonight. I am weak and needy and unfit in and of myself for this task, and so I ask for your support and your strength and the filling of your Spirit so that I might be a pure channel of your grace. 
Would you speak tonight through what you have already spoken, and may I communicate with clarity and fluency and fervency and grace for the sake of Christ and His church. And I pray these things in His name, amen and amen. We are in Luke chapter 5, and we're looking at verses 33 to 39, and let's look first at this thoughtful inquiry. And I say thoughtful because I don't think this is necessarily a continuation of the conversation that we looked at last week in the previous passage, though they flow very naturally. Um, as, uh, and I say that for a couple of reasons. First, Mark, in his uh, description of this episode, uh, makes a clear distinction between the... Uh, um, between last week and this week, and he also refers to those asking the question as people and not the Pharisees. And secondly, Luke actually alludes to this same fact in the language that he uses as well. Look at verse 33, he says, And they said to him, the disciples of John fast often and offer prayers, and so do the disciples of the Pharisees, but yours eat and drink. And if it had been the Pharisees, they wouldn't have phrased it exactly that way. So I believe Luke is, again, as we've talked about as, since we started our study, he's not working chronologically, but here we see him working uh, literarily. And he uses the setting of the previous week and Matthew's feast that he had put on for Jesus uh, to keep the eating and drinking at the forefronts of, of the minds of his readers, which includes you and me. And, and people, the people that are there simply have a very thoughtful question. It's an interesting question, but it's, it's a simple question. Because John's disciples, they knew, were fasting and they had a particular way of praying, and that fasting and praying involved mourning, and it involved uh, the confession and repentance of sin, right? That, that was John's message. That was his ministry, calling people to repent. So they were doing something specifically through their fasting and praying. The Pharisees, on the other hand, they had turned fasting and even praying into a legalistic form, or the two of those things, into legalistic forms that they used to express their own specific piety and their spirituality, which was, in fact, in their minds, superior. And there was only one, there, there was actually only one fast required by law. And we learned that in our study of Leviticus, and that was at the Day of Atonement. And this isn't to say that there aren't other examples of fasting, both in the Old and New Testament, but the one on the Day of the Atonement was the only one required. And what the Pharisees had done was build upon that, and they had included now, or had increased that requirement to Mondays and Thursdays as well. We're going we're to fast twice a week. 
And we know from Matthew's version of the Sermon on the Mount that they had not only increased the number, but they had also changed how this was to take place. They would disfigure their faces, and they would walk around in doom and gloom, and they would look tired while they fasted, and then they would stand in public places to to make those prayers at particular times during the day and do so for everyone around them to hear, again, exalting themselves drawing attention to themselves, putting their own so-called righteousness on display, putting their piety on display. And so people are wondering, obviously so, Jesus, you and your disciples, you're not doing what John's doing and his disciples are doing, but you're also not doing what the Pharisees and their, their disciples are doing. What's with that? What, what are you doing? And, and we want to know why. And it was genuine. A genuine question. And that, of course, leads to the meaningful reply in verses 34 to 39. To answer, Jesus uses three specific illustrations. He uses the illustration of a wedding and a, a patch and wine. Let's look at the first of the wedding in verse 34. He says, And Jesus said to them, Can you make wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in those days. Jesus says, listen, fasting isn't wrong, but it isn't always appropriate to do it, right? It's, it isn't wrong, it's just right now is not the time to do it. When you go to a wedding, wedding guests are in the mood to party, right? It's not a funeral It's not a time to mourn. It is a time of joy. It is a time of celebration. And you can't make wedding guests fast when they're there to feast. It's a time of eating. It's a time of drinking. It's a time of dancing and celebrating. Children, I want you to think about it this way, okay? You probably would get, this might help you some, all right? Um, If you were invited to a birthday party, Right, we've had several birthdays just this past week, and if you were the birthday boy or girl, or if you were a guest at the birthday party, what would you expect to do? You would expect to play games, and, and what would you expect to eat? You would probably expect to sing, of course, we're going to sing happy birthday, uh, and what would you expect to eat? Right, you would expect cake and ice cream, Right? It was funny, I uh, texted Chris and Ashley this week to wish Ada a happy birthday, and Chris <laughs> texted back, as only he does, and says, uh, she just wants ice cream, Rev, not platitudes, right? And that makes sense, does it not? He's exactly right. It's a, cel- a birthday is a celebration. It wouldn't be a birthday party if all you did, right children, if you were invited to this party and all you did was sit around and stare at each other? And what if when the time came for the cake and ice cream that somebody brought out cauliflower and broccoli and fat-free, sugar-free, taste-free, fun-free, anything? It wouldn't make sense. And Jesus says, look, I'm the bridegroom, and my disciples are wedding guests, and you can't make them fast 
Because I'm in their midst. I'm here. Now is a time of joy and gladness and celebration because of who I am and what I've come to do. But then he says this. He says, but there will come a day. A day is coming very soon when I won't be with him. He's saying there's coming a day when he's saying that he would not be with him. As a matter of fact, he's going to, he says he's going to be forcibly removed from them. And that's when mourning becomes appropriate. When he's absent, then it's time to fast. And of course, he's... He's referring to his upcoming betrayal and trial and crucifixion and death and burial. Passion week is going to be the time to fast and mourn, but not before. And fortunately, that time of mourning would be brief. They didn't know that then. We know that now. It was three days. Because fasting would once again be inappropriate, at least in the sense in which John's disciples were fasting. But more on that in just a minute. Secondly, the second illustration involves a patch. In verse 36, he says, He also told them a parable, and no one tears a piece from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. If he does, he will tear the new one. And the piece from the new will not match the old. And Mark adds that it will be uh, pulled away and both will be torn. Jesus is saying, look, let me put it this way. No one, no matter how much someone likes a new pair of dress pants, is going to tear off, or or, or, let let me go back. No one who, no matter how much you love the old pair of dress pants, Right, that makes more sense. We, we all have those pair of pants that we just love and are really comfortable. No one who puts a hole in those old pairs is going to go to a new pair and tear a, tear a piece off and try to repair the old. Even if you want to keep the old around. Number one, it's not going to match. The colors are not going to be ma- uh, match up. And because the new pair hasn't been washed enough, You put that patch on, and when it is washed, it is going to restrict, and it's going to pull away, and it's not only going to tear the old pair, but now the new pair is ruined as well. And his point is this. He had come to proclaim the good news of the kingdom of God. He had come to proclaim the gospel. He had come to secure salvation. He had come to redeem and forgive and heal and restore and reconcile through his life, death, and resurrection. And it wasn't something to simply tack on to the law or to cover up the holes within Judaism. It didn't work like that. It was a standalone. What he did was a standalone work. And while he had come to fulfill the law and And while the law did point to the work he had done, the two themselves couldn't be mixed. It was impossible. This was Paul's point in the letter to to the Galatians that we studied back in 2019. If you remember, he told those in Galatia, look, if you're going to keep a little bit of the law, you can't just pick and choose which part of the law you want to keep. And so if you keep some of it, you need to keep all of it. And oh, by the way, you try to keep the law, then you you were stressing and you were showing and exhibiting your belief 
that the gospel is insufficient and what Christ has done was insufficient and therefore by keeping the law you're rejecting him. So if you trust any part of it, you're rejecting Christ and what he has done on your behalf. So the two are related, but they're incompatible. And then he says this, the third illustration in verse 37, he speaks of wine. He says, no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the new wine will burst the skins and it will be spilled and the skins will be destroyed. But new wine must be put into fresh wineskins. Wineskins were made from animal carcasses, primarily goats, and they would you know, gut the animal after it was dead. They'd gut the animal and take out the bones and sew the skin together. And, and they would, over, over time, these skins would become uh, brittle and less pliable. And so to put new wine that was still expanding and fermenting into these unpliable skins would cause damage to those skins. And eventually, it would not only ruin the skin, but ruin the wine because the wine is now all over the floor. And so Jesus says, you you can't do that. You can't put this new wine into old wineskins. And his point is the same as the previous illustration. And that illustration is the gospel doesn't fit within the constraints of Judaism in general or the law in particular. They're incompatible. The gospel is the fulfillment of and the expansion of of Judaism and the law. The kingdom of God had progressed over time. And what was once a family in Abraham is had grown into a nation of families in Israel, and and now it was expanding to become a family of nations from every tribe, tongue, from every tribe and tongue in Christ, and the freedom and security that He came to secure could not be brought about or contained by or obtained by or sustained by the law. Again, they, they just, they don't work. And then in verse 39, he says, No one, after drinking old wine, desires new, for he says the old is good. And we have to be careful here. We can't read that too fast because a a quick reading of that one particular verse says that the old is good and better than the new. And that's not what he's saying. And many will justify that by saying, well, old wine is always better than new wine. Give me the older vintage before you give me the new one. Wendy and I, over the holidays, though we learned something a little different, we were watching that new documentary, or an old documentary, uh, on, uh, called Psalm. It was a story of sommeliers and the history of wine. And we learned during that documentary that a good vintage has more to do with the crop of grapes on a particular year than it does the age of the wine. And so what happens is that you can have a bad batch of old wine because the grapes were bad, and you can have a great batch of new wine because the grapes were good. So you could actually have a 2010 that's better than a 1990 because the grapes are better. So all that to say is Jesus' real point is that many people who are used to the old 
are so used to the old that they don't want to give the new a try. And in this context, right, those who are so used to the Judaism, those who are so used to the law, they're not going to give the gospel the time that it deserves. They're they're comfortable with their works-oriented, performance-based law, and they're not even going to consider the grace-based, faith-oriented nature of the gospel. Now, that was, that was quick, but let's consider our takeaways. Let's think about how we might apply uh, this tonight, and I want us to consider three things, and I didn't put them in, the, in your bulletin so you weren't moving ahead too fast. The first is this. Let's consider the perils of syncretism. The perils of syncretism. Uh, Syncretism is an inappropriate blending of non-Christian ideas or practices with Christian faith. And as Solomon once said, there's nothing new under the sun. This has always been going on, but I think we can say that it's been gaining traction lately. Many outside of the faith in Christianity um, and Christ... Uh, see Christianity and and Christ as just another option on the buffet line of of religion. And they walk through life uh, grabbing off that buffet line, and so they get a little uh, uh, spoonful of Eastern mysticism, and then a little spoonful of Catholicism, and then they grab a piece of Greek orthodoxy, and then a piece of Buddhism, and then, and then we're going to take a little Jesus and fill in the gaps and cover up the holes that are left. And unfortunately, many, even within the faith, do the same thing. We're going to get a, a little bit of self-righteousness here and a little bit of self-justification there and a few meritorious works here and then a little faith there. And we get a little Gnosticism here, and, and a little bit of humanism here, and a little bit of man-exalting philosophy, and, and a few godless theories here, and, and then for good measure, we'll get a little gospel. But brothers and sisters, if Christianity doesn't mix with Judaism, right, it's and how closely they're related, and how one points to another. If, if Judaism and Christianity don't ultimately mix as closely as they are, neither will Christianity mix with anything else. It doesn't work. And the idea, well, let me say this first, the gospel As we learned in Galatians, the gospel plus anything ceases to be the gospel, period. And so the idea that we can and should go to other sources other than God's revelation of Himself to find out what we need for life and godliness is simply a rejection of the sufficiency of Scripture. 
I agree with Denny Burke. He's a professor at Southern Seminary. This is my paraphrase, but he says, Why chew on the meat and spit out the bones of worldly nonsense and potentially choke on what we fail to miss when we can go to sources that are all meat and no bones? Why send someone, this is great, why send someone to a a landfill to mind valuables that may be there, but risk the danger of illness and injury. Why risk the exposure of damnable error to find truth that you can find in Scripture as well as solid, time-tested trustworthy sources. It just doesn't make sense. And we must be always aware of these perils, of this mixture, of this syncretism, and the slippery slopes that lead there. So that's first. Second, the second consideration. I want us to consider the practice of Lent. The practice of Lent. Without going into great detail, Lent, which began last Wednesday, on Ash Wednesday, is a time of fasting from food, of repentance from sin, and even abstaining from things that are good in an effort to increase piety and to be more focused upon the Lord Jesus and His upcoming crucifixion and resurrection that is celebrated on Easter. And first, let me say that our belief and stance on Christian liberty causes us to refrain from identifying anyone's participation in Lent as a sin. Let me say that again. Our belief in Christian liberty causes us to refrain from calling anyone's participation in Lent a sin. It is not a sin. Many people, including some in this room, some of you, choose to follow the historic church calendar because it it assists you in your own personal um, practice of spiritual disciplines as well as helps you with opportunities for family worship and discipleship. At the same time, that same stance on Christian liberty that we take very seriously causes us to also refrain from what, in the words of Carl Truman, it causes us to refrain from making Lent a normative practice for Christians imposing it on our congregation, or claiming that it confers benefits that are unavailable elsewhere. Let me say that again. Our Christian liberty, our firm belief in Christian liberty, causes us to refrain from making Lent a normal, normative practice for Christians, imposing it on our congregation, or claiming that it confers benefits that are unavailable elsewhere. Again, that is a quote from Carl Truman. And let me explain. 
We all live in the midst of the already and the not yet. You hear that phrase from us quite often. Christ has come. Christ is coming again. And we do long for His return. We long for Him to come and to make everything right. And we look forward to that day when we will be saved from the presence of sin. And that we will spend eternity with Him, dwelling in His presence, eating and drinking with Him. True. But because He has come, because we have been justified by His life and death and resurrection, and because He has ascended, and He has been exalted and is currently reigning over His kingdom, and because He is presently with us right now, and indwelling us, and has, having sealed us, we do not believe it is time right now to fast sorrow, sorrowfully for 40 days but rather to feast. We've been called to feast. He calls us and will call us here in just a few moments to feast. As a church, we, we believe that our, our directory of worship says under the New Testament, no day is commanded to be statedly kept holy except the Lord's day, which is a Christian Sabbath or the Christian Sabbath. And it's on that Christian Sabbath that we celebrate His resurrection every week. We are reminded of our sin through the declaration of the law every week. We lament and confess and repent of our sin every week. We receive the assurance of our pardon through the participation and through the proclamation of the gospel every week. We are reminded of our helplessness and need of grace through baptism. We are reminded of our weakness and dependence upon God and His provision for us at the Lord's table. We don't strive to abstain from sin on a yearly basis for a 40-day period. We strive to mortify our sin daily. We don't abstain from God's good gifts, but we enjoy them in moderation and gladness for them. And while we as a church, we have in fact fasted, we fasted as the pandemic began. We fast. We set aside days to fast and pray, and we'll probably do so again at different times and for different needs or direction in the future. In our church of books, book, church of, uh, book of church order allows us to do that in chapter 62, but we did that and we'll do that. We will do so joyfully, not sorrowfully in light of the already and with hunger for the consummation of the kingdom in light of the not yet. I want to say that again too. We, we, will, we did and will do so joyfully, not sorrowfully, fast in light of the already, and with a hunger for the consummation of the kingdom in light of the not yet. Our fasting will be done from food 
and will reflect our desire always to feed upon Christ who alone is our satisfaction. He is the one that meets our every need. It will also be a reflection of our grief over sin, but not a practice of self-flagellation. And we will not only seek to do so humbly and without exalting ourselves, we will also do so without attempting to manipulate the Lord. And finally, we'll When we do so, we will refuse to do it to fulfill some man-made tradition that is presented as necessary and therefore mandatory. As it says in chapter 62 of our BCO, the observance of days of fasting and of thanksgiving is both scriptural and rational and should be left to the judgment and discretion of every Christian family to determine when it is proper to observe a private fast or thanksgiving and to the church sessions to determine for particular congregations. Maintaining that balance of Christian liberty. That's the second. So here's the third. Final consideration. Might we consider that we should be people of joy? People of joy. And when I say joy, please please understand, when I say joy, I'm... I'm not talking about this disingenuous, uh, manufactured optimism. I'm not speaking of, um, you know, ignoring or denying certain emotions at all. I'm not talking about the absence of sadness. I'm talking about an overall sense of triumph in the midst of any and all circumstances. Whether we're happy or sad healthy or sick, experiencing pleasure or pain, whether we are satisfied or hungry, whether we have plenty or in need, whether we're on a mountaintop or whether we're in a low, deep, dark valley, the Lord is always our strength. His joy is always our strength. He has triumphed over sin and death for us. And we therefore have nothing at all to fear. But in those days when that fear creeps in and we do grab a hold of it, we look to Him. We can look to Him and trust in Him because He is leading us and protecting us and comforting us. He is working all things together for our good because we love Him and we only love Him because He loved us first and He has called us according to His purpose. Brothers and sisters, we can actually jump up and down for joy and triumph, not for the hard times, but in the midst of them, in the midst of those difficulties Because He is our rock and He is our fortress. He is our deliverer. In whom else can we trust? He hems us in. I I shared this with the ladies on Wednesday and I shared it with the Salises this afternoon, right? He is our great shepherd, hems us in, leading us 
in front, coming along beside us closely in the midst of the valleys, following us behind, following from behind with His mercy, His covenant love and faithfulness. He comes along behind us. He hems us in from all sides. He sympathizes with us. He's everywhere we turn. Everywhere we turn, He's there, and He understands where we are. He knows the questions and concerns we have. He knows the struggles that we're in the midst of, and the burdens we carry, and even the unknown. He knows. He's there. And like our faith, the joy that He has the joy that we've been given, it is a gift from Him. It's a fruit of the Spirit that indwells us. We've been given all the joy that we could ever imagine. And we need to consider appropriating that as best we can. We should always be ready to celebrate because we have been given every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Again, we have no want. He has prepared a table before us in the presence of our enemies. Our cup overflows. He gives us beyond what we could ask or imagine. May the Lord continue to supply our every need as He's promised to do so. And for those who are downcast tonight. For those who have fallen and, and in and of yourself you're unable to get up, my prayer is that He would restore the joy of your salvation this hour. While we are sojourners and exiles, we are to be people of joy. For Christ has made purification for our sins. He has sat down His Redemptive work is finished. But he continues to intercede on our behalf before the throne of grace. He's coming again, and we who are hiding in him, those who are hiding in Christ, who is our ark, will pass through the waters of judgment and will be brought to a place of rest upon Him who is our rock. And we will dwell in His presence forever. May others see and experience the joy that we have in Christ. And may we always be prepared to give a clear explanation of that joy that will be so foreign to others who have no hope. May we be a joyful people. Let's go to the Lord in prayer.